I don't know the number of years it's been since I sang that song. <laughs> and I happen to think, most likely, there were three kings, since there were three gifts. But who knows? So we'll just we'll go with that, okay? So I want you to turn to Jeremiah chapter 24. And here's what I want you to understand as we turn to the 24th chapter of Jeremiah. Sidney read at the beginning of worship from 2 Samuel 7, which is 1,000 B.C., and then she read from Acts chapter 2, which is after the birth of Christ, more than 1,000 years, much more than 1,000 years after those promises made to David. Jeremiah is almost smack dab in the middle. It's around the year 600 B.C., just to round it off. It extends over many more years than that. But to make it easy, 1,000, the birth of Christ, 600 B.C. It's a tumultuous time. Uh, 120 years earlier than this passage, we're going to read Northern Ten Tribes of Israel, which had rebelled against David and therefore against the Lord. 120 years before Jeremiah's day, they were annihilated by the Assyrians, leaving only the two southern tribes of Judah and their capital city of Jerusalem, in which is the temple, in which, of course, is the Ark of the Covenant. But now all of that is threatened. All of that is, is threatened by the invading armies of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And already, he has carried away some of their leading citizens into exile. Probably about three different periods of exile throughout this 30 or so years, or 20 or so years. So now we come to Jeremiah 24. And this is what we read. <clears throat> After Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken into exile from Jerusalem, Jeconiah. <laughs> Another strange name. This is actually Jehoiachin. So why is he called Jeconiah? How many of you have two names? How many of you have two names? Put your hand. How many of you have two names? My name is John Render Keynes, okay? Why they decided to go with the verb, I don't know. But I have two names. And Jeconiah has two names. Jeconiah, Jehoiachin, it's the same person, all right? Okay. So he, Nebuchadnezzar has taken into exile from Jerusalem Jeconiah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, together with the officials of Judah, the craftsmen and the metal workers, and had brought them to Babylon. And then the Lord, Jeremiah says, showed me this vision. Behold, two baskets of figs placed before the temple of the Lord. One basket had very good figs, like first ripe figs, but the other basket had very bad figs, so bad they could not be eaten. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Jeremiah? I said, I see figs. Good figs, very good. The bad figs, very bad. So bad they cannot be eaten. And the word of the Lord came to me. Thus says the Lord, 
the God of Israel. Like these good figs, so I will regard as good the exiles from Judah, those living in Babylon, whom I have sent away <clears throat> from this place to the land of the Chaldeans. I will set my eyes on them for good, and I will bring them back to this land. I will build them up, not tear them down. I will plant them and not pluck them up. And by the way, just so you might take note of this, those four verbs, build, tear, plant, pluck, they appear repeatedly throughout the prophecy of Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, at the beginning of the prophecy of Jeremiah, Jeremiah said, God, the Lord tells Jeremiah, this is the message I will have you to proclaim. It will be a, ma a message of building and of tearing down. It'll be a message of plucking up and of not plucking up, of planting and not plucking up. Lord says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God. If you mark your Bibles, you might want to underline that. That's one of the recurring themes in all of the Old Testament covenant history. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That will be true because they shall return to me with their whole heart. But thus says the Lord, like the bad figs that are so bad they cannot be eaten, so will I treat Zedekiah, who is uh, Jehoiachin's uncle, now sitting on the throne, I will treat Zedekiah, the king of Judah, his officials, the remnant of Jerusalem who remain in this land, and those who dwell in the land of Egypt. I will make them a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth to be a reproach, a byword, a taunt, and a curse in all the places where I shall drive them. And I will send sword, famine, and pestilence upon them until they shall be utterly destroyed from the land that I gave to them and their fathers. Let's pray. Father, this is not real upbeat. So help us to understand what is going on here and to apply it to ourselves and to live in the glorious light of what you are teaching. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Linda and I have a beautiful fig tree in our side yard from which I enjoy its fruits. I, I, I like figs. And most of the time, the figs are good, but every now and then, they're not too good. Just spit them out. They're overripe, or they're not ripe enough. Well, here in Jeremiah 24, the Lord shows the prophet two baskets of figs. One is filled with good figs, the other with bad figs. In verse 5, the Lord says the good figs, they correspond to the Jews who are now living in exile in Babylon, and the bad figs, they represent, verse 8, the Lord says, they represent the Jews still in Judah and Jerusalem, along with a handful who have already fled to Egypt in an attempt to escape the Babylonians. But now, turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah chapter 29. Because here the Lord speaks through Jeremiah to the good figs. Jeremiah writes a letter to the good figs who are living in Babylon. And in verses 4 through 7, 
he tells those good figs in Babylon, the Lord tells them that he is the one who sent them into exile. It wasn't just Nebuchadnezzar, it was the Lord's doing. And therefore, this is how he would have them to live. They are to build houses, they're to plant gardens, they're to get married, they're to have children, they're to increase in number, and they are to seek the peace and prosperity of Babylon. So many ways. We are the exiles living in Babylon. And these words, in so many ways, speak directly to us. But on the other hand, in Jeremiah 29, 17, the Lord tells the Jews who still live in Jerusalem and Judah that he will trouble them with famine and pestilence and he will make them like vile figs that are so rotten they cannot be eaten. Yuck. Now, of course, the question is why? Doesn't it seem a little backwards to you? I mean, my initial response has always been, why wouldn't the good figs be the ones still in Jerusalem where the temple is and the Ark of the Covenant is to be found? But instead, the Lord says, the good figs are in Babylon. The bad figs are those still living in Judah and Jerusalem. Why? Well, maybe it's because the sins of those living in Judah and Jerusalem are greater than the sins of those carried into exile. Now, that makes sense to me, but that's completely and utterly wrong. We know that that's not true because in Jeremiah 29 and verses 15 and following, the Lord says that both the exiles and those in Judah and Jerusalem, he judges both groups of people to be guilty of not heeding his word. Okay. So, if the exiles are as guilty of disobeying the Lord as those in Judah and Jerusalem, why does he call the exiles good? The reason is because of the Lord's sovereign purposes, which are so often far beyond our understanding. Look again at 24, chapter 24, verse 6. Look again. Lord says concerning the exiles, I'm going to set my eyes on them for good. I'm going to bring them back to this land. I'm going to build them up, not tear them down. I'm going to plant them and not pluck them up. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God, for they shall return to me with their whole heart. So why does the Lord choose to do good to the exiles instead of those living in Judah. It's for the same reason that he chooses to give you the gift of faith. The reason he chooses to love the exiles, to love you, is because that's what he chooses to do. As I once heard a preacher say, he loves you 
because he loves you, because he loves you for the sake of his own glory. So what is the good that the Lord is promising to these exiles? Well, part of that good, a very small part of the answer to what is this good is reflected in the story of King Jeconiah, that is Jehoiachin, King we talked about somewhat last week. And what's important for you to remember in regards to Jehoiachin is that he's been carried into captivity and he is living in Babylon. But don't forget what Sidney read this morning because Jehoiachin is also a descendant of David's royal line. For 400 years, the house of David ruled Judah. But now, this royal son of David, Jehoiachin, he's living as an exile in Babylon. But it's even worse than that. Look at chapter 22, verse 30. Jeremiah 22, verse 30. Because here the Lord decrees that none of Jehoiachin's immediate children will ever rule as king over Judah. And none ever do. Now listen to me. If you're a Jew, your world is turning upside down. It sounds like No descendant of David will ever again rule Judah. I mean, 400 years earlier, as Sidney read, the Lord gave his covenant promise to David that he would have a son who would rule forever over an eternal kingdom. Well, if you're a Jew in 600 B.C., that promise appears to be null and void. But... And it's just amazing to follow this roller coaster. With the stunning announcement of Jeremiah 22.30, no son, immediate descendant of Jehoiachin, will ever rule as king of Judah. With that ringing in your ear, you stumble into chapter 23. You just stumble into chapter 23. And this is what you read in verse 5. Jeremiah 23, verse 5, the Lord tells you the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord is our righteousness. Now, as I pointed out last week, take note of that name. It's not the righteous Lord. I mean, truly, he is righteous. But his name is the Lord, our righteousness. This coming David, the Lord, our righteousness. So Peter stands in the streets of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, and says clearly the prophet wasn't speaking simply about a literal David because we all know where his grave is. 
So of whom is he speaking? Well, from our New Testament perspective, from your New Testament perspective, you know who the prophet is speaking about. His name is Jesus, the one who freely chose to, to wrap himself in the filthy rags of your sins and in exchange to clothe you in the robes of his perfect righteousness. But now, go back to thinking like a Jew in 600 B.C. Your king, a descendant of David, along with significant members of your people, they are now in exile. Your nation is occupied by the enemy. Your city is on the brink of extinction. And you know if the city falls, the temple falls, and we lose the Ark of the Covenant. And yet, here's this prophet, and he's telling you, a Jew in 600 B.C., he's telling you the day will come when a future descendant of David will rule over you forever. And not just any king. A king who will be called the Lord, Yahweh. The Lord, our righteousness. Now, you're still playing the role of this Jew. That's hard for you to believe. That's hard to believe. I mean, look at the reality of your circumstances. That's just hard to believe. But you've got a choice. There are other people with a different message, and they, they're calling themselves prophets, and you like what they have to say. And they're telling you, look, peace, peace. We have a loving God. He will never harshly judge his holy people. He will never allow his city or his temple to be destroyed. Listen, these prophets want to assure you that the Lord will protect and deliver you out of the hands of the Babylonians. Now, whose message do you like? Paul will later speak of those messages that tickle our ears, that tell us what we want to hear. But of course, the problem is they don't come from the Lord. Look at Jeremiah 21.8. In the midst of these circumstances, these Jeremiah's message, the message of these false prophets, the reality of what's going on around them, the Lord through Jeremiah says to you who are living in Jerusalem, Jeremiah 21.8, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. You obey me and I'll bless you. You disobey me, and I will judge you harshly. Well, to obey him would mean that you take his word seriously. You acknowledge that the Lord has sent the Babylonians to justly punish you for your sins. And what more? And what, what more? You must now repent and, and seek once more in the Lord's strength to, to please and serve the promised king who Jeremiah tells you is coming, the king who Jeremiah insists will in truth be the Lord, will in truth be God. 
God come in human flesh. Well, of course, by God's grace, as we sit here this morning, you know who that king is. He is the son of David, born to a virgin, the son of God, whose name, prophet Isaiah tells you, is Emmanuel. God with us. By God's grace, you know and believe the good news that God became a man, lived a sinless life, then took upon himself your sins and suffered the just penalty for your transgressions. You understand and you believe it's not because of who you are or what you have done, but because of who he is and what he has done that you can now be judged good. I don't know if you like the idea of being thought of as a good fig or not, but you can now be judged good, righteous, sinless, perfectly holy in the eyes of the court of heaven. And knowing God so loves you, you love him, and you strive in his strength to exercise an obedient faith in his word so that you can serve your risen, reigning and coming king. Now look again at Jeremiah 24, verses 6 and 7. And now read with me these words. Let me read for you these words and let you hear, hear them as God's promise to you. I will watch over you. I will bring you back to this land. I will plant you in the promised land. I will give you a heart to know that I am the Lord. For as he says in verse 7, you will be my people and I will be your God for you will return to me with all of your heart. And why is that true? How can that possibly be true? Because the Lord chooses to love you. He chooses. Now, let me just push ahead in the history here. 70 years after Jeremiah's day, some 540 years before the birth of Jesus, a remnant of Jews will return to their homeland. And they will build a new temple and eventually rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But even more importantly, that remnant that returns, just a handful choose to return. They will be the ones, the ones whom the Lord has delivered out of exile and returned to the promised land. It will be through them that the promised son of David, the righteous branch, the one called the Lord our righteousness will be born. And he will come to deliver you from exile. To deliver you from exile in your Babylon, in the dominion of darkness. And to bring you to live both now and forevermore in his promised land, in his kingdom. Which you're told in the book of Revelation will be like the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. 
So how can a righteous God declare these exiles whom he tells you have not listened to his servants, the prophets, how can God pronounce them good and make them such amazing promises? Well, even more pointedly, how can a God who is both loving and just declare people like you and me good? I mean, by God's grace, I know my sins. And they are many. By by God's grace, you know yours. You know how often we choose not to obey the word of the Lord. How in the world can the Lord declare us good? Look at Jeremiah 24.9. Jeremiah 24.9. Here the Lord describes the consequences of his wrath being poured out upon the people of Judah and Jerusalem. And he says that they will be judged abhorrent, an offense, a reproach, a byword, an object of ridicule and cursing. Now, who do you know who was judged by those seeing him hanging there on a cross? Who judged him to be abhorrent? to be an offense, to be a reproach, to be a byword, to be an object of ridicule and cursing. You see it? You see it? The wrath of God that fell upon Jerusalem, justly fell upon Jerusalem in 587 B.C. It fell upon the Son of God around 30 A.D. Now, try to imagine the people of Jerusalem's cries of anguish as Jerusalem's walls are torn down and the temple and the Ark of the Covenant are destroyed and their citizens are either led into exile or slaughtered. Imagine their cries. Now hear the cry. Of Jesus as he hangs on Calvary's cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He who had no sin became the sin bearer. He suffered unimaginable agony, the physical horrors of crucifixion But the even greater horror, the even greater horror of knowing for a moment in time that God the Father had turned his back on him. Why? Because he's wrapped in the filthy robes of our sins. My friends, the Old Testament saints were counted good. They were saved by God's graciously granting them the gift of faith in the coming one, faith in the Lord, our righteousness, just as you are saved by faith in Jesus, 
the one who came to fulfill all that was promised and anticipated throughout the Old Testament. For he is the one of whom Jeremiah speaks 600 years before his death. He is the promised coming king, the Lord, our righteousness. So it is to you. Figs judged good only because of God's grace, mercy, and love. It is to you. God speaks these promises. I will deliver you out of the exile of darkness. I will bring you into the light of the kingdom of my son. I will build you up. I will plant you in good soil. I will give you a heart to know I am the Lord. For I will be your God. And you will be my people. So now in just a few moments as you eat and drink, rejoicing, just rejoice to know that the punishment you merited, Jesus suffered in your place. And come eat and drink, rejoicing to know that by grace through faith you are a child of the kings, a member of his covenant family, equipped and empowered to serve him, eager to do his bidding, ready to be used and to be used up by him for his glory, and for the good of others. It's because he loves you, because he loves you, because he loves you that you are numbered among the good figs. Does he love you greater love? Has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. For you he died, he rose again, he now reigns. For you he's coming again. And for you who had no sin, he, and for you, he who had no sin, wrapped himself in the filthy garments of your sin and then in exchange clothed you in the robes of his spotless righteousness. So to God be the glory for the great things he has done for the great things he is doing, for the great things he will do. For because of his mercy and his grace, you're good. And if it doesn't offend you, you're good figs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the marvelous way in which you have opened eyes that were blind and unstopped ears that could not hear. How you've changed our hearts and refocused our wills. Now, Father, as we come to this table, may we indeed rejoice as we remember what you have done on our behalf and as we anticipate what you will do in that day when you return. And all God's people said,